I have hanging in my office an admittedly uh, unconventional decoration. It's a spear, but not just any spear. It's, if you're familiar with the story of Jim Elliott, and you should be, if you're not, it's depicted in the book uh, and filmed by the same title, The End of the Spear. Jim Elliott and four other missionaries traveled to Ecuador to bring the gospel to an unreached tribe, but were tragically killed pretty much uh, on their arrival, just as they got going with their missionary work. Well, the spear hanging in my office is an actual spear from that tribe during that time. My father-in-law gave it to me as a gift, and I decided to hang it in my office. Now, granted, it's not the most inviting decor for a pastor's office. You know, thanks for coming in to see me about your most intimate problems. Forgive the instrument of death hanging on the wall. But I keep it there as an important reminder to never forget, even in my safe American suburban church office, Never forget that what comes out of this office will be hated by our world. The, uh, the reality of American Christians is that it's easy for us to forget uh, that persecution is a normative part of the Christian life. But I would argue that the days that are upon us are increasingly reminding us that this is so. I read an interview this week where uh, Tim Keller was interviewed. If you don't know this about Keller, one of the things that does make him unique is arguably uh, evangelical's most important global leader over the past few decades. One of the things he's known for is his incredibly charitable perspective um, towards our secular world. He's just so full of graciousness and kindness, unwilling to view the world certainly as a threat to be avoided or as an enemy to be defeated. Well, he was asked in this interview about his views on the growing changes in our world. He was asked specifically if he thinks American culture is growing more hostile to Christianity. And this was his answer. And this, again, this, this struck me as unique from Keller. He said, absolutely yes. The culture is more hostile to Christianity. Whether speaking of the academy, the media, government, business, popular entertainment, the arts, or social media, our culture is growing more hostile toward Christian beliefs and values. It is not the same as it has always been. Now, I'm used to Christian alarmists with martyr complexes, warning us of the world's hatred, the big bad world out there. But when Tim Keller starts saying these things, you know it's upon us. We are discovering that you don't have to travel to Ecuador to experience the persecution promised to the followers of Jesus. Yes, obviously, chances are you will not be killed by a spear, but you will be hated, mocked, marginalized, shunned such that our views and practices are now scorned as what's wrong with American society. But this is nothing unusual, and our beatitude is here this morning to remind us of that. The final beatitude of God's kingdom speaks to the persecution of God's kingdom. 
And we're going to follow the same outline one last time this week. Kingdom posture, kingdom promise. Now, to call being persecuted as a a kingdom posture is a bit odd. All the other beatitudes speak to the internal posture of our hearts and our lives, but this one speaks to something external, not something we do, but something done to us. So on the surface, all the other beatitudes are virtues that we who follow Jesus are expected to cultivate in our lives, but how do you cultivate persecution? Are we supposed to just go out there and seek it? No, not at all. But the point Jesus is making is that it will seek us out. He ends the beatitude discourse with persecution because if you live out this discourse, if you actually practice what we have been discussing for weeks now, then you will, not may, you will be persecuted. And so in this way, persecution, though outside our control, still remains an expectation for followers of Jesus just as much as all the other Beatitudes. This becomes a litmus test of sorts on whether you are indeed following the narrow path of God's kingdom. Now, that being said, let me do something here that I've done with almost every Beatitude, but is especially important with this one. Let me clarify what persecution is not. Jesus includes an important qualifier that we must always bear in mind when it comes to the issue of persecution. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Then in verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. We are blessed when persecuted for righteousness sake. We are blessed when reviled on account of Jesus. So hear me clearly. Followers of Jesus should expect persecution, but we must make sure it's the Jesus we follow that is being persecuted. Yes, it is true that the Christian life will be offensive, but it must be Jesus and his gospel, not us, that is doing the offending. I cannot overemphasize the importance of this Enough in our day, because here's my concern. Christians enter into the fray of our culture war, participate in our society's rituals of rage, receive the predictable outcome of scorn, and then shout, persecution, persecution. In many ways, our world has become addicted to manufactured persecution. It's martyr complex caught in a feedback loop of paranoia, convinced that the other side is out to get us, fueling the clicks that feed the profits of both conventional and social media. And we dare not baptize that as Christian persecution. Let me say it more simply. Maybe I'm being persecuted for my faith, or maybe I'm just acting like a jerk like everybody else. And yet at the same time, Jesus is clear, not just here, but really everywhere in the Gospels, that his following should expect persecution. So we don't want to be obnoxious Christians out there offending everyone with with our religion, but if my life is not offensive in any way then that also tells me there's something off with my religion. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, says our Lord. 
At the end of the day, the kingdom of God and the fallen kingdoms of this world are at an immovable impasse. If they hated Jesus, and they did, then they will hate you as a follower of Jesus. So if I'm facing no discomfort, no awkwardness, no tension, no contempt as a follower of Jesus within this fallen world, either I'm compromising or privatizing my allegiance to Jesus. Both are problematic. So we know to some degree we should be offensive, but we want to make sure that it's Jesus and his gospel doing the offending. How do we sort all this out? Is there a way to test the uh, persecution for biblical authenticity? Well, again, this is the final beatitude for a reason. The, the cumulative outcome of living out these beatitudes. What this means is that Christian persecution is being hated for practicing what we've been exploring over the past few weeks. So, if we are going to face opposition, let it be a community embodying the Beatitudes they are opposing. Perhaps a concrete example would help. Let's, let's get practical. Let's consider the greatest, uh, the greatest potential for persecution we are facing in our time, our sexual ethic. Um, I talked about this in the congregational meeting, but you have noticed I'm, I'm, I'm the speaker at our Good of the Bluegrass conference this year, and there's a reason for that. We've known for a while that we are going to have to discuss gender and sexuality. It's just too important in our cultural moment to remain silent. We've got to take it up. And so we designated this year's conference to do that. But as we started exploring uh, speakers for the conference, we just kept getting nervous about each option for different reasons. It's just so sensitive and so fraught with controversy. And so Will said, you know, Robert, why don't you just do it? Thank you, Will. Why don't you just do it? <laughs> you know our community. Uh, you, you, you know our cult context. You, you know what will work and what won't work here. Why, why, why don't you do it? So I get the enviable task of speaking on our culture's most divisive topic. Yay. But that trepidation we feel reveals what we all know is true, right? This is the area of persecution in our time. The Bible is uniquely critical and offensive to every culture. The biblical sexuality has risen to be the greatest offense within our culture. So no matter how winsome... Charitable, humble, gentle, persuasive. No matter how many adjectives I clothe this conference in, at the end of the day, I will be hated by some for what I have to say. And I understand that. But let me show you the point I'm trying to make. By running uh, sexual ethics through the grid of the Beatitudes. If hated for my views on sexuality... I want to be hated as this type of person. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I enter into this discussion fully aware of my own poverty in this area. I'm not straight simply because I'm attracted to the opposite sex. My sexuality is crooked and broken, profoundly disordered and in desperate need of God's grace and redemption. Blessed are those who mourn. I don't just see my broken sexuality. I am grieved by it. I lament. I am saddened. I am angered over my sexual sins. 
The smallest lust within my heart grieves me far more than the sexual sins of our culture. Blessed are the meek. That poverty in spirit and mournfulness over my poverty yields a meek sexual ethic. There is a humility and gentleness to the way in which I engage this haughty and contentious debate in our society. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I long for sexual righteousness, absolutely. But it begins with a longing for it to be um, in my life above all else. I am not condemning the illicitness of our culture while nursing a hidden porn addiction. My chief concern is the righteousness of my sexuality. Blessed are the merciful. This poverty in spirit, this mournfulness, this meekness, this longing for personal righteousness forges a prodigious mercy. I'm not condemning others, not judging others with a harshness. I require so much mercy in this area, and I will likewise extend the mercy I have received to all, including those with beliefs and practices I disagree with. Blessed are the pure in heart. My utmost aim in this area, far more than winning the debate or the culture war, my aim is that my heart is pure. Wholly devoted to Jesus, my Lord. How can I ask a culture to submit itself to the sexual ethics of Jesus if I'm not subduing my heart to the sexual ethics of Jesus? Blessed are the peacemakers. I want peace, do you? I weep over the chasmic divide between conservative evangelicalism and LGBTQ image bearers of God worthy of love, not scorn. Reconciliation is what I long to see, and I, a peacemaker of Jesus, will take the first step. If they don't want peace, so be it, but I do. I want to live at peace so far as it pertains to me, Romans 12. Now, If I do that, if the beatitude structure governs the sexual debate, and then I am hated for my sexual ethic, it's then that I turn to the words of my Lord and Savior and hear him say, blessed are those who persecute you. And yet, we have to ask, is this really a blessed life? Blessed are those who are persecuted? In all the other Beatitudes, we understand how we find a peculiar blessing when we cultivate them in our life. How can we possibly say being reviled, marginalized, hated, mocked, in extreme cases throughout church history, imprisoned and martyred? How can we possibly call that a blessed life? Well, let's turn now to the kingdom promise. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes have come full circle as Jesus repeats the first promise he gave. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Beatitudes begin and end reminding us that ultimately the reward is a heavenly reward. And so the question of questions becomes, how valuable to you is the kingdom of heaven? Again, the Beatitudes are kingdom promises, not earthly promises. 
Eventually, they yield earthly rewards, but only when Jesus returns and heaven and earth are again one. But for now, the Beatitudes are an invitation to renounce earthly comfort for heavenly reward. And persecution, speaking candidly, is where the rubber meets the road in that decision. There was a time, there was a time when you could seemingly have both, a comfortable life following Jesus here on earth. Now that time was a mirage that we created. Most notably pointing out that our black brothers and sisters never had that in our society. I would be remiss on MLK weekend to not at least acknowledge that the black church has been segregated and bombed. They did not have the comfort of American Christianity. But yes, I'm willing to admit In our tradition, evangelical tradition, American Christianity for a couple centuries experienced a a historical anomaly, comfortable Christianity on earth. But as I have noted many times, we need to come to grips that that is over. We are officially a post-Christian society. The dream of Mayberry is dead, remembered only in black and white reruns on your TV. And instead of vainly trying to recapture what once was, we must reimagine our new life as exiles. And that exilic life comes down to this impasse. The world will reject you, but the kingdom of heaven will welcome you. All of us, to some degree, are going to have to choose which is more important to us. The smile of the world or the smile of God. Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He believes those who say the kingdom he offers is better than anything the world has to offer, so much so that the world could hate me and I'm still happy. That's what Jesus says. Simple question, do you agree with him? Now, in answering that question, we would do well to take stock of exactly what the world does have to offer us. Jesus says, what does it profit us to gain the whole world yet forfeit our soul? Now, he's speaking on an ultimate level that everyone who gives their uh, life to gain the world but in the end loses their soul will forever regret that decision. But I want us, especially when I say us, my friends who are not followers of Jesus, to consider it more on a temporal level. What does it profit us to gain the whole world at all? Is that a blessed life? Make no mistake, to follow Jesus is a persecuted path. The world will hate you for doing so. But what does the world have to offer in the first place? Are the popular really blessed? Are the powerful really blessed? Are the wealthy really blessed? Are the addicted blessed? Heck, is anyone these days living a blessed life in this world? Well, Jesus says, yes, actually, there are some. Those being persecuted by this world. Those who have chosen to renounce the idols of this world in favor of the ways of his kingdom are the blessed of this world even while being reviled by the world. It seems paradoxical, but it has been proven true countless times before. And yet we doubt, and I get that. Sounds good in the safe confines of a sanctuary, but as we go out into a hostile world to walk the persecuted path, we will wonder if it's worth it. Great sermon, but thinking about sticking with the low-key, private, uncontroversial Christianity till I get to go to heaven. 
Well, Jesus recognizes that we need more here with this one in particular. So he does something that he doesn't do with any of the other Beatitudes. You've noticed that this one is three verses rather than one. And there's a reason for that. He knows we need more here. And so he gets personal. Notice the change from third person to second person language here. The Beatitudes are written in the third person. And as such, they can have the feel of an ethereal ethic delivered to a generic audience. Blessed are those who are persecuted. But now look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's reiterating things, but this time in the second person, this time looking you in your eyes and saying, I really mean this. You, my persecuted child, will be blessed. And it's here in the second person that he gives us an added promise. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, not great on earth. Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus turns our attention to the prophets. Nobody in the story of Scripture was persecuted more than the prophets. That's why he's going there. And yet the prophets were held in such high esteem among God's people. They had the revered status as heaven's heroes. And Jesus is saying... To his followers, you don't have to be a special prophet to be a hero of heaven. You who are reviled by the world like the prophets of old, you too are the celebrities of heaven. Hated by the world, heroes of heaven. There's even more here to see. Though in the moment his disciples didn't know, what Jesus is doing here is foreshadowing. For so, they pro- for so they persecuted the prophets before you. That takes on a whole new meaning after Jesus suffered the ultimate persecution, the greatest persecution our world would ever know. The message of the prophets throughout Scripture was always a message of God's salvation. Yes, judgment. Yes, warning. But always ending in promise. Those who heed the message of the prophets will receive the salvation of God God's salvation is coming, was the theme of every prophet. Well, in Jesus, the final and perfect prophet to which every prophet points, the message is not salvation is coming, the message is the salvation is here. And how are we saved? Via the persecution of our prophet. Jesus would say he himself was blessed in his persecution, but his blessing was that his persecution purchased our blessing. And so now on the other side of his Calvary persecution, we read these words differently, don't we? Rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted me before you. See, on the other side of the crucifixion, followers of Jesus began speaking of their suffering, began speaking of the persecution they were experiencing in an odd way, sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. As if to say, we get to do it with him. This was their reward, and this is our reward. How are we ultimately blessed when persecuted? 
because we get the honor of being like Jesus and with Jesus when persecuted. We get to share in his persecution, and if we share in his persecution, we will share in his glory. Peter tells it like this, Rejoice that you get to share in Christ's suffering so that you may rejoice and be glad when you share in his glory. Brothers and sisters, if we share in his cross, we will share in his resurrection. And it will be there in that glorious heavenly moment where we will discover the Beatitudes' fullest meaning and and final completion. We will say, oh yes, truly, truly blessed are those who are persecuted, for now ours is the kingdom of heaven. Or as Jim Elliot himself famously said before his martyrdom, we are not fools to give what we cannot keep in order to gain what we cannot lose. Let me pray. Or strengthen us from the work of the cross, whatever comes our way. We come now to the memorial of your persecution. We thank you that you were persecuted on our behalf. And by your wounds we are healed. And now, Lord Jesus, we count it an honor to be persecuted on your behalf, to share in your sufferings. But we need to be strengthened to do that. So fill us now with hope and promise. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.